The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Wall Street is marking the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis by partying like it's 2007. Meanwhile, Toshiba's terrible deal-making launches a nuclear strike on $6.3 billion. And will America heed the water woes warning from California's Oroville Dam fiasco? Those are some of the issues we'll be tackling in this week's edition of The Views Room, where Breaking Views columnists chart the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and I'm here with Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen. Hey, Anthony. So we start the show as we increasingly do in Washington, D.C. President Donald Trump has had yet another troubling week, and he's only three or four weeks in, culminating in the enforced resignation of his national security adviser, Michael Flynn, for lying about his conversations with the Russian ambassador. So that got us thinking. Let's compare how Trump, the business president, is dealing with these challenges with corporate chiefs. Our Washington columnist, Gina Chon, is on the line to talk us through the results. Morning, Gina. Hi, guys. It isn't looking pretty, is it, if you compare him to uh, a number of CEOs out there who've had to deal with various problems? Yeah, like some of those executives, like former um, CEO of Wells Fargo, John Stump, or or others who've had to deal with scandals, uh, I think Trump is finding that events can really overtake him when he delays really addressing the problem. We saw in reports from the Washington Post and, and other media organizations that the White House actually knew about his national security advisor, Michael Flynn, um, making misleading statements about conversations he had with the Russian ambassador over sanctions uh, actually for weeks, but failed to really make a move on it until really it was it was too late and and the decision was basically forced upon him so what does this say to us about about his leadership style then he he prides himself on being decisive and obviously he's pointed to his role on the apprentice for just saying you're fired to people on the tv show but this shows a very indecisive president what is causing him to be so antithetical to the way he portrays himself if i may put it that way yeah, well, I think in a lot of ways he's finding that it is very difficult to run the U.S. government like he ran his business. He seemed to think that he could come in and sort of change the way things work in Washington, but in a lot of ways he doesn't understand how it works, and it's being reflected in the chaos you're seeing at the White House. He seemed to want to put off making a decision on Flynn. He worried about what that could signal in in terms of a White House that's already had multiple problems, whether it's uh, successful legal challenges over their travel ban on um, residents from seven Muslim-majority countries. We've seen other issues flap up that are really all self-inflicted wounds. And um, I think you you saw it in this latest example with uh, the resignation of Flynn. Let's look at another one as well. I mean, we're considering the fury around Hillary Clinton's emails when she was Secretary of State. You, we, we saw all these pictures on social media of people at his uh, his winter White House, Mar-a-Lago, his, the resort he owns, with showing them, him, themselves with him while he and uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan are dealing with North Korea's missile launch. 
Um, it doesn't seem like he's particularly practicing uh, what he preached. Yeah, and it's starting to catch up with him. We saw even Republican lawmakers, the uh, chair of the Oversight Committee, writing a letter about those possible security concerns discussing the North Korean missile launch in an open-air restaurant where, you know, anybody could take pictures, you know, waiters could possibly listen in on them. Um, It definitely raised a lot of concerns. And in a lot of cases, including when, when it comes to his security, protocol, there are people who are trying to tell him the proper way of doing things, just like in some of these other scandals we saw in Wells Fargo over their fake accounts scandal that there had been a host of whistleblowers, you know, various other executives at the firm trying to work on the issue, and in that case for actually about two or three years before anything really happened to John Stumpf. You're seeing a, a similar situation here, and the only difference is shareholders or the board can push out uh, chief executives when the, it seems like they aren't doing a good job cleaning things up, and it's much harder in, in the case of the U.S. president, but we're seeing the pressures building up on him for sure. So you heard it here first. And so, Gina, what you're basically saying is that President Donald Trump should have been fired already. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in, in, as he likes to uh, pride himself, as of being a successful businessman. I mean, I'm sure, you know, in a publicly traded company, especially this kind of management would not be tolerated. Well, okay, Gina, one last question. Let's spin this forward a bit. What does this mean for various financial and economic policies that the administration and Republican-run Congress want to push forward? Well, it's a major distraction and could potentially hold up a lot of these policies that he really ran on, whether it's, you know, cutting taxes or spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure. These are all things that require a president's attention. It requires the White House attention. He's about to address Congress in a few weeks to discuss these plans and having these kinds of headaches and massive crises and constantly in the headlines for all the wrong reasons just take up all this time and bandwidth that could be better spent on these economic issues. Right, Gina, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for talking us through that. We'll have you on again very soon, I'm sure. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. From droughts to floods, we're going to look at California and the latest to come out of that state and the dam that is literally about to burst. Well, well, not not quite. Not (laughs) quite. But, you know, it was a crisis. Basically, they had to evacuate 200,000 people, this Mm -hmm. dam, Oroville, and Northern California. You know, years of drought. And now, now all of a sudden, they've had a lot of rain and snowfall, and it's basically, you know, this dam can't handle the, the flow of water. What does that mean kind of broadly for climate change and for other like areas in this country that, you know, we've been experiencing yeah. a lot of this? Well, I think that, that there are a few ways to lay this out, right? So that the dam, it's not so much the dam that's in trouble, it's, it's the, the spillways. So what happens when the dam reaches its capacity? You've got to have somewhere for the excess water to go. So firstly, it went down the main spillway, which has now two, three, four hundred million dollars worth of damage because it wasn't well maintained. And it, it was described as like looking like Niagara Falls. I mean, it- yeah, well, there was there was actually they were sending enough flow over there, about 100,000 cubic feet per second per second at one point to try and um, empty it out uh, or try and reduce the, the level that actually that's that's roughly what you get at Niagara Falls. There's also the emergency spillway, the backup to the main spillway. And that's basically just an earthen channel. 
and that started washing away and was near to collapse, which is why they got. Uh, they they said that up to two hundred thousand people had to evacuate. Now, as of Wednesday morning, they're allowed back in, but the big issue they have is there's another storm coming, and that may well produce yet more rains that causes more problems. Um, they feel like they've got the dam now down in, to enough of a level, about fifty feet, I think, below the the top of the dam now that it shouldn't be an issue unless there really are torrential rains. So that's that's the, that's the short-term issue. And what that speaks to is two things. Firstly, people just weren't prepared for the end of the drought, right? Despite all this talk of we need more storage, we need to be able to uh, make sure that our farmers get enough water, they weren't ready for but, it. But there was, they, they did know that this dam had some problems, well, right? Some and, people, they, some and they decided did. not to fix yeah, it. Yeah, about that 12 years ago, three, three environmental agencies said, look, we don't think the emergency spillway especially is well constructed it won't be able to handle uh, any kind of major flood and and the the feedback from all those who were invested in having to pay to uh, repair the dam so i think it's 27 different water authorities throughout california this by the way the oroville dam helps regulate the flow all the way down into southern california as part of this massive state water project they were all saying nah, it's fine that we've got uh, the, the, the federal agencies think that this thing can handle 345,000 cubic feet per second uh, it started disintegrating at 12,000 cubic feet per second after a couple of hours. So people do not want to invest in infrastructure in this country, especially if there's no money off it. There's no revenue stream from that part of the dam. Now, there is a hydroelectric uh, power station on there, uh, and there are an, the revenue streams you can get from dams, such as from, from that. But one of the problems is there's just no way of attaching a revenue stream to it, so you can't then necessarily charge the right price for water to various people downstream to be incented to fix the infrastructure. Okay, so, you know, one of Trump's big signature plans here is infrastructure spending. So what are the chances that some of that money could be directed towards fixing waterways? Pretty slim, because you've got to get, his plan involves getting private capital involved in a big way. The issue behind that is then, well, what money can you make off repairing dams which are just about storage. Again, if you haven't got a revenue stream attached to it, pardon the pun, then there's not much you can do to entice private money. You've got to have something else there. So you know, can you start charging downstream users for storage, charging them more for storage? Well, maybe you could do it that way. It's you know, it's, it's a tricky one to suddenly start off from scratch at Oracle Dam, but you, know, you could see that happening elsewhere maybe. The broader issue for America is that Oroville Dam is by no means unique. It's 50 years old next year. So not that old. Or well, is that actually, old by dam? That, by dams, that's the rough age at which you think a dam is getting, to, most dams are getting towards the end of their useful life without extra repair and whatever. And most dams in the country are older than that. They're sort of mid-50s. I think they were at, a, at a study four years ago, the average age was 52 years old. So let's assume it's 55, 56 now. And that study by the American Society of Civil Engineers gave a degrade to the quality of the engineering, current air engineering and standards of America's 84,000 dams. So it ain't good. And that's just because they've not been kept up. If you then add on climate change, or if you want to deny climate change and not think about climate change, changing weather patterns and drought versus flood. One of the issues, of course, is if you have a long-term drought, then the riverbeds that aren't used, or the parts of the riverbeds and the floodplains aren't used as much, can't soak up the water as well as they would do if they were used to the water. They'll get flooded much more quickly because they've been dry for so long, which means more water flows down to to where it gets naturally or stopped or stopped by man-made structures such as dams, increasing the pressure, increasing the, the, the infrastructure issues, and creating a crisis that, that needs to be fixed pretty soon. If you, if you look, I was looking at one of the um, uh, publications I like to read on this is a non-profit called Circle of Blue, and one of the journalists there has been looking at um, what various governors of states have been saying about water 
in their state of the state speeches. And several of them have been mentioning, you know, oh, we need a water plan. We love our water plan. Our water plan hasn't done enough yet. And the New York Governor Cuomo has said we need $2 billion just to fix crummy pipes. And think, you know, pipes are one of the biggest issues we've got in this country. Many of them are 75, 100 years old, as we saw in Flint in Michigan, uh, introduce a little bit of extra uh, lead oxidization into the matter. You've got a massive crisis, both for people drinking it and for, uh, uh, for how to repair it. So there's a lot brewing on this. Uh... Oh, ab- absolutely. And, you know, and then you just think climate change changes things even more. So it's not just whether there's a drought or a flood. It's a question of how long it lasts. It's a question of you know, what kind of water are you getting? One of the big problems that California's got is that the mix has changed uh, this year now that the drought has ended, at least the amount of water coming down has ended, the, the mix has changed from a lot of snow, which of course takes longer to melt, so the flow flows down slower, to more rain, which impacts your rivers and your dams immediately. And again, the infrastructure just wasn't ready for that. Great. So you're saying more Niagara Falls across across the country? Uh, possibly. I mean, <laughs> th- th- we're, we're bound to see more issues at dams. We're, I'm not saying we're going to see dams collapsing and flooding entire plains and, and, and killing people, but you know, it's certainly a worry that uh, I think Oroville Dam has showed us needs to be fixed. And we're talking you know, billions of dollars of money needed here, which isn't necessarily, as we were saying earlier, easy to come by. Okay. Well, that's depressing. Thanks, Anthony. Oh, it's always my pleasure. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to pass the mic over to Asia Editors Pete Sweeney, who's going to be interviewing Quentin Webb about Toshiba's nuclear crisis. We're talking about the troubles, to put it mildly, that Japanese conglomerate Toshiba has been having. Quentin's been following this quite closely. Um, you know, we just had this massive, what, $6.3 billion write-down, a lot of ugly headlines. The earnings came out late. What, what's going on and what went so wrong? Hi, Pete. Well, we had an extraordinary situation this week where Toshiba was about to release results, including a big write-down, which it had first flagged in December, but at the last minute it said it couldn't put the results out, it wasn't able to produce audited numbers, it asked for an extra month. There was chaos, everyone was waiting for these numbers, and a few hours later it said after all it was going to put out some provisional, preliminary, unaudited numbers, and detailed this incredible write-down, yes, $6.3 billion. And most of this is related to a uh, ill-advised venture into to nuclear power, I understand, um, in particular with, with Westinghouse. That's uh, right. What was the error? That's right. So D- Toshiba bought control of Westinghouse in 2006 for a much bigger sum of money than people had thought the business would go for. They then doubled down in 2011 by increasing their stake. And then fatally, at the end of 2015, they then bought out a construction partner called CB&I Stoner Webster, um, in order to fix a sort of dispute between the consortium partners to continue building nuclear reactors. Um, the problem with nuclear reactor building is that it's very prone to kind of cost overruns, delays, and so on. It's a business that has almost never made money for anyone, and it became a lot harder after the Fukushima disaster in Japan in 2011, when a lot of countries started reviewing whether they needed to build new nuclear capacity at all. Well, so, I mean, my understanding is that the governments want these contractors to take on more and more of the risk, and the industry is is less willing. I mean, 
is there a silver lining for a, a turnaround or, or somebody else to come into this space here? Or is Toshiba just, you know, a symptom of a, a much wider disease that's, you know, set to continue to plague the industry going forward? I mean, is there going to be any sort of reset? That's a good question. In most industries, you'd expect when it becomes more consolidated that pricing power would improve. But in fact, the nuclear industry is actually down really to only a handful of big players already, including General Electric and Areva. So I don't really think we'll see that dynamic improve very much. In Toshiba's case, they're gonna they're considering selling off their their chips business, right? I mean, so I mean, what's left of value in this company if if they sell that off and are you know basically avoiding nuclear going forward? I mean, how does this how does this play out for stock investors in this company? And that was the big bombshell this week. Toshiba had not been expected to sell a majority stake in its NAND or flash memory business because that's actually where most of the value in the company resides. The fact that they now are saying they might sell a majority or perhaps even all of that business suggests that they're really up against the wall. In fact, they're going to end the year with negative equity, which means that they have to do something to shore up the balance sheet. Investors will be left with a hodgepodge of other businesses, a lot of different energy generation businesses and infrastructure from things like elevators to lighting to broadcast systems. And it also at the moment has a raft of other investments in Japanese companies and other securities. But there won't be kind of one big business at which Toshiba is a profitable market leader. Well, doesn't that make, I mean, so with with a lot of the Japanese companies, not just Japanese, you have this conglomerate discount. I mean, is this, you think Toshiba is throwing the the baby out with the bathwater here? Because now you're talking about a company that doesn't seem to have any, even less of a unifying theme than than it did before. You could argue that the Japanese electronics conglomerates are a long way behind the curve. If you look at people like General Electric or even Siemens in Germany or Philips, they've actually spent a long time already streamlining and jettisoning unprofitable businesses. Um, Hitachi is ahead of Toshiba here. Hitachi is their great um, local rival. It had its own crisis, which was less severe than Toshiba's and has in the last few years kind of restructured and become more profitable. Toshiba is just now going down that route itself. Well, it sounds like they've got a long way to go. Thanks. Thank you. So for our final segment today, we're welcoming back a previous breaking user who's just rejoined us, Lauren Silverloffin. Welcome back, Lauren. Glad to have you back on the crew again. Hello. It's great to be here. So, um, Lauren, for your first story back, you basically went back in time to when you, you worked for us 10 years ago, and you looked at Blackstone CEO Steve Schwartzman's 70th birthday party compared to, well, I mean, I think you looked at what he should do for his 61st birthday party after the market crashed. He had a very big 60th birthday party, which had... Uh, Far too many uh, gaudy attributes to it in 2007. Rod Stewart saying this time it was Gwen Stefani, who is, in my view, a decidedly better performer. I'm I'm sure Steve Schwartzman would love uh, love your take on that. (laughs) So many other things have been happening the last couple of weeks as well. Just just this week, Goldman hit an all-time high. It shares hit an all-time high, the best since uh, late 2007. We've pegged the beginning of the financial crisis to February the 8th, 2007, when HSBC had to admit that it had a lot more subprime mortgage losses than we thought. So we've got all this bubbling up at the same time as we've got, I think, as evidenced by Goldman's shares and also by Steve Schwartz. And we've got a lot more, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it, animal spirits on Wall Street. Lauren, what are you, what are you seeing? How, how would you characterize that, given you, you looked at 
that unfortunately didn't go to, but you did look at uh, the party down in Florida that, that Schwarzman had. Yeah, you know, I was surprised actually pulling up some of the data from the private equity business right now to see actually how Hedia had gotten compared to where it was in 2007. In 2007, you know, when Schwarzman had this party, it was completely in the limelight. He was taking her, his firm public. People saw that as very hypocritical because he had talked about the merits of taking firms private all the time. And here he was running a private equity firm. It was the first time someone was going to take it public. Um, He was asking at the time for very astronomical valuation, which subsequently fell for a very long time. And at the same time, then he had this very elaborate 60th birthday party. And it really marked a moment for the sort of beginning of the end for private equity. And as you say, the rest of the financial crisis. But he he also around this time 10 years ago was getting pretty lucky, right? He he was uh, his firm was leading the investment in equity office properties, which became I think the last very big deal that got done well, and which Blackstone did okay on. The next big reek deal that happened for Archstone is basically one of the deals that landed Lehman Brothers in bankruptcy. Exactly. I mean, you know, Blackstone is tremendous at market timing for both themselves and for their investors. And as you say, equity office was this amazing deal. They made a ton of money only months before the commercial real estate market stopped up. He's continued to perform very well relative to to other private equity firms. I would not say that that's well overall, but very well compared to others. So let's spin it forward even more. So you were saying earlier that you were surprised at at the the kind of deals that are getting done now and how heady it had got. Just talk us through some of the things you you discovered. Well, the leverage levels are fairly close to where they were actually in the 2007 timeframe, which is surprising because it may just be that we're sort of getting used to where leverage levels are. Back in 2007, we were looking at these deals thinking that they were priced, you know, way too high and they were taking on much too much debt to do them. Now, actually, the purchase multiples are even higher than they were at the time, uh, which, again, is surprising. There is not excesses in terms of the sizes of the funds. Those have, you know, moderately come down. But generally speaking, a lot of the little markers that people tend to use to look at bubbles in certain sectors, they're they're approaching those levels. So what do you think this means for his uh, 80th birthday party? So, (laughs) you know, I'm amused not only by the musical guess that he chooses, but the next decade is going to have different challenges for Blackstone, Um, mainly who his successor is going to be. You know, when you're talking about someone going from 60 to 70, you think, oh, they they can still kick it for a long time, right? 70 to 80, you start looking at who's out there. George Soros is in his 80s. You know, Warren Buffett is in his 80s. Icon, I think, is in his 80s. So certainly Schwartzman can go on. But Blackstone is a very large very established at this point, private equity uh, asset manager. And he needs to thoughtfully start laying out a succession plan because he really is that firm. Lauren, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to have you back, as I said. And uh, I'm sure we'll be getting you on the blower from Dallas once you've uh, got your feet back under your desk properly back home. Thank you very much. Okay, that's our show for this week. The Views Room is masterfully produced by Bethel Hapti and Andrew D'Antonio. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Jen Saber and Peter Sweeney, as well as our guests, Gina Chon, Lauren Silver-Loughlin, and Quentin Webb. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Please do subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes and do share your opinions about our show. We do want to hear them as long as you're not too obnoxious. And of course, please do tune in next week for another edition of the show. Thanks for joining us.